Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. In August 1968, American anti-war protesters chanted, the whole world is watching. What might have been hyperbole then is fact now. The whole world is watching Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or as the Russian government would have it, the Russian special operation in Ukraine. Except for audiences in Russia itself, that is, where there is very little actual reporting of what is happening in Ukraine that doesn't mesh with the government's narrative about the war, I mean, the special operation. Among the thousands of Russians reportedly fleeing their country are many scores of Russia's best journalists. One who has not is Yevgenia Albats, investigative journalist, political scientist, author, and radio host. Welcome, Yevgenia, and thank you for joining this episode of New Thinking for a New World. Thank you very much for having me, but just let me correct you from start. Whoever was preparing you for this podcast didn't do a homework. So uh, I used to be a radio host at Echma Square. I've been running, it's, a, it's the free willing uh, uh, broadcasting in Moscow. And I've been doing my, I was doing my show for 19 consecutive years. However, it was shut down two weeks ago. I also editor-in-chief of the Moscow-based political portal, The New Times, which also was blocked by the Russian government. Therefore, we work now uh, only under uh, virtual private network, VPN. So I moved my show, I moved my show to my YouTube channel. And I run this uh, show on my YouTube, but of course, you know, I lost uh, the audience of more than one million people that we had at Echo Moscow. To that point, Russians and Americans, Russians and Russians, Russians and other Europeans are mostly cut off from each other. That's the fact that we're having this conversation is itself almost a miracle. And I thank you for that. Why is it so important to you to keep talking? <laughs> it is my job, Alan. If you don't know, you know, I've been doing journalism for the last 45 years of my life. And that's what I do. I would, to be, to be honest with you, I would prefer teaching, but I'm banned from teaching in Moscow. No university uh, is hiring me to teach. You know, I, I used to teach institutional theory, political regimes, you know, fear of bureaucracy. Unfortunately, you know, I'm banned from teaching here. So that's, you know, I share my life uh, between two, uh, two uh, things. You know, I, I'm a journalist and I'm an academic. And unfortunately, no longer uh, any of this is, is, is possible in my home country. As you've just said, you were a journalist during Soviet times when repression was severe. How does this compare to that experience? One cannot compare uh, the kind of censorship that existed in the Soviet Union to the one existed now. Of course, you know, the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state, had an ideology, and everything was 
was supposed to be in line with the ideology all the way until 1988, when censorship was officially abandoned. And then we had the freest journalism ever existed in this country. Uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of uh, uh, publications and uh, independent portals and each and every independent or free willing uh, electronic media shut down. That's all happened after the war started on February the 24th. And they also passed uh, repressive laws in accordance with which, which you one can get 15 years in jail just uh, to say that uh, Montana House in Mariupol was bombed or to say that you know, Russian army lost 7,000, uh, at least 7,000 troops uh, since Minister of Defense uh, reported just once to the Russian public, and these once happened on March the 2nd, and no information since. So there are all kinds of repressive laws. We yet to understand how they're going to work. And basically, uh, therefore, some uh, 160 uh, reporters and editors left Russia. It's not clear how we can operate here. And basically, we're just testing uh, waters. We're trying to figure out how far we can get. So my lawyers tell me, you know, first, they're supposed to initiate an administrative case. If they initiate an administrative case against you, then you have two weeks to escape from Russia. Otherwise, you go, you go to jail. I don't want to go to jail. You know, uh, I, I'm not sure I, I, I'm going to survive in jail. So and so I would probably try to catch the last train. You wrote recently that a friend had told you you were about to be arrested and you packed a bag and had it by the door and then nothing happened. What is it like to operate with that sort of Damocles hanging over your head? Listen, police comes to my <laughs> apartment every so often. Uh, and I keep telling them that when they will have a court order, then I will let them in. Listen, it's part of life. It is part of life. By the way, I should say that political journalism anywhere in the world is a risky business. People get killed. People die in different countries across the globe, not just, uh, you know, uh, in my part of the world. So it's a risky business from start. So it was my choice and it is my choice. That's first. Second, I'm no martyr. I'm not going to be a martyr. I just hate to be told what to do, to be honest with you. I just hate this. And I don't understand, you know, I'm a 60... Three-year-old, I have a PhD from Harvard University. I am a very experienced journalist. And all of a sudden, you know, these uh, bastards, you know, for one, they start the war, they destroy two countries, they kill innocent people in Ukraine, they destroy, uh, they destroy cities in Ukraine. I know Ukraine very well. You know, my grandparents were from uh, from the western part of Ukraine. I traveled all around there. I, I know these places. And so, you know, I'm very, very angry. And I, I think that and no one asked me. I'm a Russian citizen. I'm a taxpayer here in this country. And basically, they use my taxpayer's money 
to uh, send troops to the neighboring country <laughs> and kill people. It makes me very angry, Alan. So, so, so but you know, it's it's what comes with political journalism. You always, you know, this way or another, you are risking, you know, a couple of things. But it's very interesting. What's the mood in Moscow? What are people talking about? Oh, very depressed. Very, very depressed. Uh, Moscow is, a very, is a, the wealthiest city uh, in Russia. Uh, it used to be, or it's still, a very comfortable European-like city with lots of very good uh, restaurants and pubs and theaters and music halls and you know, uh, that's the country, you know, in, the, in Moscow, people were my, making twice what people uh, make on average across the country. And obviously, Moscow was enjoying all, you know, the luxuries of this, um, of this uh, market economy and exposure to the West, et cetera, et cetera. So as a result, when the war started, uh, people were so frightened there was especially young people, especially those who never really lived under Soviets. For them, it was the most difficult part. And they ran to grab a ticket because they thought that uh, Putin was going to close borders and they were going to get locked inside Russia. And so not just journalists, but you know, some 250,000 uh, left Moscow uh, in the matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, those with money, uh, business people, they flew to Dubai, Abu Dhabi, you know, to, to uh, Emirates. Some flew to Israel. Those without uh, money or with little means uh, flew to um, Yerevan, Georgia, uh, in the Caucasus, to um, Astana, capital of Kazakhstan, to Uzbekistan, to Lanbatar, you know, you name it. So uh, people ju were just running. And to be honest with you, I feel bad about that. Because after all, our uh, readers and our listeners and our viewers, they don't have this lovely option to run. They don't have money. They don't have visas. Uh, they don't have second passports. So... And it so happened that people who represent these liberal democratic values, they just run out. So uh, people in Moscow, you know, they write to me, oh, Evgenia, thank you so much that you are with us. Evgenia, please don't leave us. Evgenia, and, you know, on the one hand, I do understand that I don't want to go to jail. And I'm not ready to go to jail just because uh, a month ago I had a knee replacement surgery, you know? And with this kind of knee, it's going to be very hard in any prison, in any penal colony. Uh, so, and, but also I feel ashamed because because we just, we left 
our sort of constituency, you know. We just told them, you know, guys, thank you. It was lovely spending some years with you, but now when it's dangerous, you know, we leave you here and off we go for a more decent, more safe, you know, more comfortable life. So I feel quite ambiguous, Alan, because, and of course, you know, my lovely Czechists, they're so happy, you know, they didn't have to do anything. They just put a couple of repressive laws. They made a couple of, you know, frightening statements and liberals immediately, you know, got on their knees and said, oh, wait, please don't touch us. We just go, we just go, just let us go. Let me ask, there was recently reported a mass rally in Luzhniki Stadium where Putin addressed the audience and defended the war, the special operation, uh, as defending Christian values, even quoted from the Bible, all of which seems surreal to me watching from a distance many thousands of miles away. Um, how do people there, how do you, how do Russians view that kind of event? Is surreal the right word? You know, it's not the first time that Putin runs this type of rallies. In fact, for those of you who remember Olympia by Lenny Riefenstahl, the documentary that was shot during the uh, the first years of uh, Nazi power, Nazi in power in nineteen what was it? Nineteen ninety yeah. Uh, so these kind of rallies are very well known in uh, in this type of the regimes and dictatorships. They love to have you know to see this support of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Now, of those four hundred thousand who were gathered in Lushniki, and once again, it's not the first time we have the uh, we have had the rally of this sort. I think at least two thirds, they were forced to come. Uh, each and every enterprise in Moscow, each and every university in Moscow, or each and every school in Moscow was given a quota. They have to get that amount of people to the rally. Then there were buses, which uh, were a couple of kilometers from the place. People were supposed to, to come to the designated places. Some of them were paid, some of them uh, were not paid. They were just, you know, uh, at the expense of losing their jobs. They came and so they were taken to the rally. Now, if you watch it to the end, you might have noticed that uh, Putin was booed at the end, and that's why the the, the trans transmission of the rally was cut off. So, but having said that, I think that probably 50-50, 50% of, of Russians do support this war uh, as of now, and 50% are against it. 
we see that there is a clear-cut democratic uh, demographic divide. Those young and uh, well-educated, uh, they tend to be against the war. Those who depend upon the state, people uh, who live on retirement compensation, which they receive from the state or live out of the state budget, people with much less exposure to travel and to, to life in the West, you know, they support it so far. However, um, it's too early to say. We're just, you know, there's less than a month of a war, right? It started on the 24th. Right, we we what? Uh, uh, so on the twenty fourth of February. So tomorrow will be March twenty fourth. Will be a month since the beginning of the war. Uh, sanctions were imposed, and already uh, prices went up. Already there are hell of a lot of banks got frozen. People are unable to get uh, cash in US dollars or in euros. Um, uh, medicine went up 20 to 80%. However, the expectation is that Russians in Moscow will feel the pain of sanctions by mid-April. And those who live in big cities, 500,000 and plus, they will feel the real pain of, uh, the, of, those, of these sanctions by the beginning of summer. Let's go back for a second to Riefenstahl and the Nazis. I'm, and I'm glad you used that reference. One of the things we hear uh, is President Putin talking of demanding the denazification of Ukraine. Put aside that Zelensky is Jewish, put aside that the Germans were decisively defeated by the Russians in Ukraine in 1944. Words are chosen for a purpose. Uh, and again, this sounds to Western ears surreal. What sense does denazification make? Who's the audience for that propaganda? Who believes it? I think that uh, badly educated people um, who have been exposed to the state propaganda during the last years, they are consumers of, of those lies. Uh, if you look at, you know, Russian propaganda machine, uh, they were talking about, you know, this glory of the Soviet victory in the great patriotic war back in, uh, in, a 19, early in the first part of the 1940s. It was, you know, it became the, the biggest uh, myth. Uh, it's not to say that we didn't, yes. You know, uh, Soviet uh, Soviet army was essential in defeating uh, Nazi Germany, along with allies from the United States, United Kingdom, and many others. We uh, lost 27 million people, 27 million people to this war. Uh, however, uh, Putin uh, have been using this great victory, this past, in order to sort of to, to, uh, to build up on this past and to tell us Russians that once we were a great uh, imperial nation and we were capable to defeat uh, uh, the army which conquered the entire Europe. Now, uh, each and every kid in this country 
knows the word Nazi. If you watch Russian Channel 1 and Russian Channel 2, it's all propaganda, nothing but propaganda. First, they say that, it's, that uh, Putin started this war because Ukraine was about to invade Russia. That not Ukraine, Ukrainian Nazi and Ukrainian nationals about, were about to invade Russia. Second, they get a message that Ukrainian nationalists, Ukrainian Nazi, Banderovci, you know, the followers of Stepan Bandera who was killed by uh, by uh, KGB agents back, you know, uh, what, 500, uh, 50 years ago, um, that they are the ones uh, who bomb their cities. You wouldn't believe it, but that's exactly what they say. If you think that we watch CNN and we see that Russian troops bombard Kharkiv, bombard Mariupol, 80% of Mariupol destroyed, 40, you know, the entire center of Kharkiv destroyed, and both cities are Russian-speaking cities. 95% of those who live in Kharkiv, they speak Russian. 89% of those who live in Mariupol, they say that they prefer Russian over Ukrainian. So, but, you know, Russian TV, Russian propaganda machine, uh, says that it's Ukrainian nationals and Nazi who destroy their cities. And they keep saying this, that it's not Russian troops who, Russian troops are just, you know, Russian missiles. They All they do is they destroy uh, Ukrainian nationalist military might. So basically, and I should tell you, I'm stunned, but when you talk to people who have no exposure to any other information but the one on the state propaganda channels, then, then you get to know that that's exactly, they believe this. They say, Evgenia, but look, you know, you know, there are these Ukrainian nationalists and Nazi who are destroying their own cities. And then you ask them, wait a second, just make yourself to think what is the purpose for Ukrainians to destroy their own cities? This is their country. They're going to live there. What's the purpose of destruction of Kharkiv, Mariupol, and etc.? And then people start thinking and ask, oh, really? Really? But what about Nazis? Are there Nazis? I said, as many as you can find in Russia. Each May, on, uh, on Pushkin Square in Moscow, uh, some idiots celebrate uh, Hitler's birthday. It happens each year. It happens in Moscow, it happens in Voronezh, it happens in St. Peter, etc. So, but unfortunately, you know, people, apparently, you know, this propaganda machine, it's very successful in, uh, you know, getting this message through. Evgeny, I've got to ask you, you are, as you said, a journalist, an academic. You have, you're one of those rare Russians that have spent a lot of time in the United States. You know the United States. So I have a question. Why has it been so hard for America to figure out Vladimir Putin? Ellen, I'm afraid that it was hard not just for Americans, but for Europeans either. Because uh, for one, uh, 
Владимир Путин uh, looked as a much a man, as a capable man in comparison to uh, the first president of uh, Russia, Boris Yeltsin, who was drunk half of the time. Uh, Putin was young. He was. Uh, he spoke good German. He is well built. You know, he played judo, judo, and he looked as a modern man to many uh, Americans and Europeans. However, the most important thing is that Putin was extremely successful in exporting corruption and greed. He used, you know, being a KGB guy, he turned out to be a great recruiter. I remember, you know, the first time Tony Blair, the then uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, came to Russia. He was totally, fully in love with Putin. George W. Bush, younger, he happened to look into Putin's soul and find and found some soul. Gosh, you know, he nobody told George Bush younger that KGB guys are capable to conceal their souls. And in fact, you know, they probably don't have one. But anyway, uh, so, uh, but look, uh, if you just recently, uh, we got to know much more about that. But anyway, look, the former president of Finland was sitting on the board, I believe, of Gazprom Rosnev, the former uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Austria, the former Chancellor of Germany, the former Prime Minister of France. And so it goes. So Putin was very, very successful in buying out politicians, at least in Europe. He was much less successful uh, with the United States, except that you know Trump totally fell in love with him. I don't know what... Uh, why Trump was so prone to Putin, but, uh, you know, time and again, uh, the 45th president of the United States kept saying that, you know, that Putin, Putin is a great man and he's a great leader and a great politician. Uh, so that's the second reason that Putin was very successful in manipulating people. Unfortunately, you probably know this better than, uh, than I do, that um, there is also, you know, yes, you know, Putin was less successful in the United States with buying out politicians. However, um, they uh, Kremlin created so-called Valdai Club. And therefore, a lot of academics and policy experts uh, were invited to meet with Putin and his ministers on a yearly basis. And I wrote about that, and I spoke to these people. They were brought to Moscow on business class tickets, uh, round trip. They were placed in Moscow in the five-star hotels. Then they were taken to Sochi and were placed in a luxury resort. Their means were paid. I don't want to say that Putin bought all of them out. I don't want to say this. But definitely, and trust me, I know what I'm talking about. But some of them were sort of, they were telling me, Evgenia, don't you see that Russia is such an unlawful country? And, uh, you know, mm, uh, 
Western values have hard time, uh, you know, setting up in Russia. So probably, probably democracy, you know, Russia is not ready for democracy. So you need a strong man. You need somebody who will lead this nation, who will show this nation the path to the true world. So Putin did show. It was clear from the very beginning, trust me. In 1999, it was 100% clear that it wasn't just one KGB man who was coming into power. It was the corporation which was coming into power. It was that clear back then. But, you know, it was amazing, you know. I was arguing here in Moscow with academics and with, you know, uh, with uh, rich people and with, you know, with everyone you know, who were telling me, yes, Evgenia, we need Russian Pinochet. And then I was coming to the United States and I was telling, oh, you know, Evgenia, you're writing about KGB your entire life. You, you have a bias. I said, I have a knowledge. Trust me. In 2008, Alan, I did a, I prepared a report which was called Putin, Putin's Silent Coup. I showed in 2008, how the KGB brats took all the major resources of the country. They, they took over 10 state-owned corporations. They got under their control oil, gas, uh, telecommunications, uh, inflow and outflow, or money inflow and outflow. They took under their control all uh, industrial production, all military production, and etc. And I did this. I first presented this, I believe, it in in uh, Chapman House in London. And I was told, "Oh, you kid, you're so biased." And then I was, I was, I kept talking and talking. And I was showing, I was picking up, you know, I was making leads. I saw that, you know, that the members of the corporation, they were taking positions of the deputy heads of different agencies. That's exactly the way it worked in the Soviet Union. Only the Soviet Union, there was Central Committee of the Communist Party, which was, of course, not a party, but the form of governance, which at least competed uh, with the KGB for information. Information was the biggest commodity in the Soviet times. So competed with information and for, if for nothing else, but guys from uh, the party, they were dead afraid of KGB because they remember what uh, their predecessors uncovered the deed to, to their predecessors, how many you know, people got killed when basically Czechs were in power in the country under Stalin. So, and I kept making these reports in different institutions in the United States. At my, you know, I'm a graduate of Harvard University. I'm, <laughs> I did a couple of, of talks there and at Yale, you know, and everywhere, you know, people were saying, Evgenia, are you sure? After all, you know, George Bush Sr., before he became a president, he was, uh, the, he was the CIA chief. And I kept saying, wait a second. 
KGB comprised, uh, you know, KGB uh, was in charge of the functions uh, which in the United States were fulfilled by 28 different agencies. Nowadays, it's 17 different agencies. Listen, but you know, you have the system of check and balances. You have appropriation committees in the in, in the Congress. You know, before anyone gets money, you know, there is, you know, uh, there is uh, all kind of uh, checks. You have, you know, independent judiciary. You have the system of the Supreme Court. You, you know, your Supreme Court is just my, my most beloved institution in the United States because uh, obviously Warner Court cap- was capable to get rid of uh, uh, of uh, cruel laws and you know and and uh, segregation the South. You have this whole system that doesn't allow for one corporation to take over. So anyway, uh, but unfortunately, that's the problem. Uh, that's a huge problem that. Unfortunately, a lot of people in expert community and in academic community in the United States, they tend to believe in their own hypothesis. You know, I remember in 2017, uh, I gave a talk at Davis Center for Russian Studies at Harvard University, and that's, I'm alumni of this center and that university. Professor Timothy Colton, who was my dissertation advisor while I was doing my PhD in political science at Harvard, he, he, present, he introduced me as saying, back in, 2000, in 1994, Evgeny Alvarez came to the center and she gave a talk. And the major message of her talk was, unless KGB was destroyed in Russia, Czechs were going to take over sooner or later. And I listened to her, Colton said, and thought, it's not going to happen. She's so wrong. She just doesn't understand. She just doesn't take it. It's never going to happen. And now, said Colton, I should say that she was right and I was wrong. And, you know, it was very nice to hear this, but I was ready to cry, Alan, because I don't, I didn't want to be right. I don't want to be right. I don't want to live in the country which are run by these bastards. Putin, in a matter of one month, Putin destroyed two countries, not just one, two countries. And of course, you know, in Ukraine, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of of people killed. 141 child killed. You know, you cannot live with this. And on top of everything now, you know, I have to carry this awful sense of guilt. So let me end by asking a question. If you were to meet with President Biden or President McCone or Chancellor Schultz, what would you ask them? as a journalist, as a citizen of Russia? I'm not sure I want to meet them. You see, it's a, it's a huge problem, uh, Alan, because I want to be loyal to my flag. I hate this government. I never voted for Putin. 
I think that people who started the war, they're wartime criminals. But I love this country. I love people who speak Russian. I love them speaking Russian around me. And I do want to be loyal to my flag. Because otherwise, I would tell President Biden or Chancellor Scholz, I would tell them, by buying Russian oil and gas, you finance this war. Stop doing that. But I can't say this. Because that means that my fellow citizens, they are going to suffer tremendously. And it's hard. And it's hard. Besides that, it's a criminal case to ask for uh, sanctions against Russian Federation. So that's my answer to you. Yevgenia, thank you very much for this conversation and far more importantly, for what you are trying to do, for trying to keep the conversation going inside your own country. Uh, You are a Russian patriot. um, And I can't imagine anything that is more needed in Russia now than exactly that, a Russian patriot. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.